Where were you when the towers fell? Now, I admit, this message would have had a lot more oomph to it if I had delivered it on September 10th as originally planned, prior to September 11th. But as fate had it, our airline flight got delayed by 24 hours, so darn the luck, I had to spend another day in beautiful Bali, Indonesia. And thank goodness, Alex was available, ready, prepared to deliver an outstanding message to you, so I'm, I'm grateful to you. Thank you, Alex. I, always, I learned in my military career, never start a, a briefing with an apology, so I started it with a thank you. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, this re to me, this message has resonance no matter when you deliver it, because the story I'm going to tell you is one that's personal. It's one that has a lot of meaning to me, but to many other people, it'll have meaning, and then we'll draw the biblical part out of it. So I'll start with this, that American people like historical touchstones. We like to reach back. Our history's not that long as a nation, so we like to reach back frequently to touch things that have meaning to us, have significance. Now, for my grandparents, it was yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Of course, that's after the attack on Pearl Harbor, December, December 7th. For my parents, it was November 22nd, 1963. That was the day that John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas. I can remember that day coming home from kindergarten and seeing my mother crying on the couch, and she was trying to explain to me what had happened, that a bad man had killed President Kennedy. Well, for my generation, that moment came on September 11th, 2001, or 9-11, as we now know it. Now, some of you, I realize that I'm talking to an audience now 22 years down the road. It's funny that it was 22 years from Pearl Harbor to JFK's assassination, and I happen to be standing up here 22 years after 9-11. So a significant amount of time has elapsed. And there are probably people in here that are grown-up adults, military, or people working, or going to school, or whatever, who weren't even born. Or if they were born, they maybe were a small child. And they, so to this, to them, it's an interesting and understandably important historical event, but they don't have the same maybe sort of emotional tie. So I'm gonna to try to tie that all together because there are many of us who have a direct tie to it and have feelings about it and emotions about it. So uh, I'm gonna do a departure from a normal sermon today. So <laughs> I would ask you kindly, please save the hate mail to Pastor Kevin. Don't ever let that guy preach again because he didn't talk about the Bible enough. I will. I'm going to get to the scriptural part, but first I'm going to tell you a story that even in retrospect seems surreal. It's my story, and I want to tell you that story, so it's going to take a while to get through that, but when I'm done, then I'm going to tie in what does it mean? What does scripture say or seem to say, and maybe doesn't say, and how does it affect us moving forward as Christians? So where were you when the towers fell? Me? Next slide. I was a Mighty Colonel in the United States Air Force at Barksdale Air Force Base, Louisiana. I was a commanding officer. Uh, we had three squadrons of B-52 airplanes with more than 50 aircraft and had 1,500 people in the command. About 1,000 of them were aircraft maintenance and munitions. The other 500 or so were pilots, navigators, electronic warfare officers, intel people, administrative people, and on and on. It was a varied mix. And that's myself coming back from a deployment uh, I didn't go with the first group, but I went with the second group in early 2002, so that, this would have been in April of 2002, and you can see me there. Uh, it's my son, Sam, on the left. He's uh, 
now captain in the Marine Corps. And uh, in my arms is my lovely daughter, Rosalie, whom I'm going to embarrass right now. She is a nurse, and she's 25 years old. So it's been just a little while since all this uh, took place. But that Tuesday morning, drawing back to 9-11-2001, the morning dawned clear, there was a hint of autumn in the air. Now, we were wrapping up our largest annual exercise at Barksdale with a splash. This was going to be a crew scramble to B-52s that were bristling with weapons, followed by an engine quick start, which was reminiscent of the high holy days of the Strategic Air Commander, SAC. If you've ever seen those movies where they blow a horn and the guys run out to their airplane to go to war with the Ruskies or whatever it is. Sorry for my Russian friends. Uh, we love you. But uh, this was not something we did anymore. The Cold War was over. Okay? We scripted the whole thing to make sure we didn't mess it up. And I went out to the assembly facility, which was the old SAC alert shack, to brief the crews on how the response was to proceed. The gist of my message was... now. I don't think I'm verbose, but I'm told that maybe sometimes I'm slightly verbose. But the gist of my message was simple. Do not let your adrenaline or your testosterone or even your estrogen outrun your common sense. Go nice and slow and methodical. We don't do this anymore, and let's just do this in a good way. Now, after I finished, I noticed, I'm looking around the room, and everybody's like gone. And I walked to our chow hall, the place where we ate in that facility, and I noticed everybody was in there, and they were transfixed on a screen. We didn't have like the big screen TV, we had a TV mounted on the wall. And on that TV, I saw a gaping, burning hole in one of the World Trade Center towers in New York City. Now, as aviators, you have to understand our, our, our mindset, our DNA. We immediately were trying to figure out how the plane hit the building. How could that happen? It had happened before in New York City, way back in 1945, a B-25 in thick fog had slammed into the 79th floor of the Empire State Building. But something was wrong with the picture we were watching, because here it was an obviously clear day, what we would call clear in a million, and instrumentation today in aircraft is orders of magnitude better than 1945, even 2001, much better. So how could a modern aircraft make such a gross navigational or judgmental or airmanship error. And then the second plane hit. I quickly decided that we would continue with the aircraft exercise. After all, if America was under attack, it seemed better to me to have our crews in running and armed jets in case the national leadership wanted to evacuate us somewhere. Meanwhile, the nation's command structure up to and including the president was clearly in disarray and there was an information vacuum. And at that point, we didn't know about the Pentagon also being hit, and we didn't know about Flight 93 crashing in the Pennsylvania countryside in an attempted hijacking. So I drove out to our flight line, and I found our wing commander kind of tooling around, driving around. Now, to, for those of you who have not had the benefit and the pleasure of being part of our United States Air Force, I was a group commander, so I was a colonel, but I worked for a wing commander who was basically the boss of the whole thing, the whole enterprise, the base, the wing, everything. And he was, at this place, was a one-star general. <laughs> but this guy was sort of just lost in the ether. He's driving his car around. I pulled up, we did this thing, and I said, boss, you know, I'm signaling my lights. He hadn't heard about the towers, and he didn't believe me when I started to tell him the story. 
When I convinced him I wasn't telling him some kind of morbid joke, he quickly endorsed the idea of pressing with the exercise and using it as an opportunity to improve our position, our response posture. So we scrambled the crews to the jets and then we waited. We left them in the planes for now, we didn't start the engines. We made provisions to keep them there for the long term if necessary. Things like external power carts, air conditioning carts, food, water, even lavatory. We even brought porta-potties out. Because about this time, I'd also heard that the Federal Aviation Administration had directed all commercial traffic everywhere to land at the nearest suitable airport. So this spawned the first of what were many poignant moments that occurred over the next few days. I had a guy working for me, a squadron commander. He was a lieutenant colonel. Incidentally, later became a four-star general many years later. But he was serving as my on-scene supervisor for the exercise in his vehicle. So again, he pulled up next to me and we're sort of commiserating about what's going on. Now, I was driving my mighty official Air Force vehicle, which was a blue minivan that my predecessor had irreverently dubbed Soccer Mom One. And as we were chatting, I noticed that there was a civilian airliner west of the base flying at low altitude. Now, you have to put yourself in my place. This was the moment of probably highest paranoia in the history of the United States. We were clearly under attack by someone from somewhere with airplanes. And here's an airplane just flying around, and we got this ramp full of B-52s with people and weapons and everything. Now, if that airplane turned left, obviously they were responding to the FAA and landing at Shreveport Regional Airport. But if they turned right, they might make a big right turn and go right into the ramp and kill all of us. And God knows who else. So we watched, I called, I'm calling the tower on my cell phone, I'm trying to call them on the UHF radio, they're not answering because they're, they're like us, they're going, what's going to happen? After about 20 agonizing seconds, the plane turned left, so that one was avoided. Now shortly thereafter, we began receiving cryptic messages at our base's command post, which was a, not a, like a tent or a bunker, but it's a facility, it's a building that's typically up and running all the time. But this was astonishing. There were some VIP aircraft apparently wanting to head our way. Hadn't they received the, the terrible news? We wouldn't have time to handhold a bunch of VIPs who were probably gonna figure out you know, what, what the cost of cereal was at the commissary or whatever, congressional delegation or staff or whatever. Not today, we're under attack. So I drove Soccer Mom 1 and went to the command post to try to figure out what was going on. So the command post, I walked in, up 24-7's, got a couple of screens up there, key staff is in there. Uh, the guy running the show was a colonel who was about, yeah, maybe two years older than me. He was the wing vice commander. He'd done the group commander thing and moved up. Again, remember, wing commander driving around his car somewhere. This guy named Tony was operating the command center and sort of making all the moves. So he, they were on duty in this big dark room. When I arrived, Tony told me with a hint of irritation, and I'll try to imitate his Northeast US accent, I don't know who these VIPs are, but whoever it is, I'd like you to get on the flight line right now and run the show. So I turned to my deputy in charge of aircraft maintenance, and I, I pointed this out in the first service, an amazing man named Lieutenant Colonel Dave Patterson. We have a Dave Patterson of our own, it's not him. And I used to call him big boy, so I said, okay, big boy, let's go. Dave, who was the most optimistic person I've ever known, looked at me and said, you got it, sir. And off we went and soccer mom went to try to figure out who was coming to our base. When we got to the flight line, I turned up the band's radio to the command post frequency, 
where they talk to aircraft, and I heard words I'll never forget. Barksdale Command Post, this is Air Force One. And a day of tragedy, this was the first of really many moments of high comedy. Since Murphy's Law is named after Air Force Captain Edward A. Murphy, you can Google that, it is entirely appropriate that in response to the most famous mothership in the world, that day we had our least experienced and brand newest command post controller on duty, and of course, that's who picked up the mic to answer the call, and in a trembly voice said, calling Barksdale command post, say again call sign? I'm not making this up. So I speed dial the command post on my cell phone and said to Tony, Tony, it's not just some VIP airplane, it's Air Force One. Get the most experienced person we have on the radio. After a stunned silence, he said he'd take care of it. And within seconds, our head of our command post, who was a, a, a flyer, a lieutenant colonel, came on the radio and soothingly said, Air Force One, go ahead for Barksdale. I looked at Dave and we just kind of laughed. The plane's radio operator then rattled off a long list of logistic requirements for fuel, support equipment, security elements, vehicles, etc. Then the kicker, their estimated time of arrival, 20 minutes. Now, I don't know if any of you have had the honor and privilege of hosting our president of these United States, also known as POTUS, to your base or your town or your community. I've had that pleasure a couple of times. But I will tell you, it takes normally weeks, if not months, of preparation. And POTUS's advanced team virtually takes over your installation when they arrive with a phalanx of people and equipment, telling you to dot that I, cross that T, paint that pole, trim that grass, do this, do that, security, blah, blah, blah. Not this time. There was no way, in fact, we could meet all their requirements in the time allotted, especially with the base in virtual lockdown or as it turns out, semi-lockdown, and I'll get to that. Then, another surreal moment. Air Force One calls us back, and they say, Barksdale, when you're ready to copy, I have an additional list of requirements. The Lieutenant Colonel Cooley said, go ahead. Air Force One said, we need 100 pounds of ice, 20 cases of bottled water, 75 box lunches, 20 gallons of orange juice, two dozen bagels, and 25 pounds of bananas. Now, while this is the collective recollection of several of us who heard it, and it may contain some very minor factual errors, it is way more than the 10% required to make it a bona fide war story, as evidenced by the actual list that Jeff wrote down. So you can see, if you think I'm lying, 25 pounds, I can't really reach it, 25 pounds of bananas. But the best part to me is this, ETA, shortly, period. <laughs> and then, to answer that call for its important items, Jeff goes, Roger. <laughs> That's all he said. And I am told that Vice Commander Tony dispatched a team to the commissary and they're like taking stuff off the shelves. So, so probably, somebody probably got an IG complaint about people raiding the shelves at the commissary. Or maybe that's just here at Guam. <laughs> Meanwhile, back at the flight line, 
Dave and I worked to get some of our maintainers, the thousand people I told you about, right? Released from the bombers to support Air Force One. I mean, Air Force One. However, no go because of ramp security concerns. And nobody seemed to know who was actually in command to make a decision. So again, the greatest moment of collective paranoia in United States history. So as Murphy would appreciate to recover Air Force One out to the parking spot, here comes, and here's his theme song, Ododiodo, one old civilian dude. Now I say old, you saw that picture of me, I was about 43 then, so to me, he was probably 60, but he looked like he was 112 years old. One guy. And he was not going to get excited about this. I pulled up and asked if he knew who was coming in. He kind of looked offended at me, and he said exactly, yup. Again, I'm not making this up. He assured me he had recovered many a 747, which was what Air Force One is. So I speed dialed Tony in the command post again and asked if there was any way we could get some of our airmen released from the B-52s to come and help out. And he said he'd try, and it didn't happen. We then turned our attention to the first list of requirements, you know, the fuel, the stands, the support equipment, et cetera. Now me, I place security at the forefront, but none of our air, you know, military bases have a lot of cops. In the, in the Navy, they call them MAs, they call them security forces in the Air Force. There's a lot of cops, because there's a lot of stuff to protect. No cops. So I called Tony again. He said they were en route. A few minutes later, here they come, trundling out of their vehicles, loaded for bear in full battle rattle and armed up to the nth degree. Slide. One of the cops even pointed his weapon at me and Dave. I, I gingerly reached down for the cell phone and I said on speaker, Tony, I'm not a control freak. Okay, well, maybe I am. But please tell these guys I'm in charge and don't shoot me. Now, he said he would. A few seconds later, the guy, thankfully, quit targeting me and on I pressed. Now, about this time, Air Force One is on short final approach. And it's an impressive sight because with them came a four ship of F-16 fighters who had been dispatched from Ellington Field in Houston and met them on their way. So they were in Florida. If you remember the famous thing, George W. Bush is reading like a, a book to like little kids, right? And his chief of staff whispers in his ear and he's like, because he's being told about the first attack. And they get up and they go from Texas. They don't know where they're going, by the way. They took off and didn't know where they were headed. And then this poor ship of S-60s rejoins with them. So I didn't even know what they were, you know, what would, anybody was thinking about that. But they came in, this huge site. <clears throat> now, as Air Force One touched down, on our base, by the way, we had a three-star general in his headquarters. He was kind of our next higher guy. He wasn't the wing commander. He was above him in one sense, but the wing commander ran the base. But the three-star was there. And he had sent a reserve one-star general out to meet the airplane. We call the, somebody's always on tap to be the greeter. We call him Peter the Greeter. So here's Peter the greeter out there, and all of a sudden his eyes go like this when he sees who it is, because obviously he didn't know it was Air Force One. And it's like this, and then whips out the cell phone, and then the next thing I see is the three stars out on the flight line with the, in the one star's car. So somehow that happened. My next concern, though, was with the president was for vehicles. As Air Force One pulled into the parking spot, parking spot. And by the way, the one civilian dude actually did a pretty good job. 
I saw, though, that we were a big, fat, not exactly on the many vehicles they had requested. To my right was our special distinguished visitor bus. It's like a short bus. We call it a Surrey. And it was, eh. And then on the left, sporting a big, goofy grin, I think maybe he was caught up in the moment, was the deputy commander of one of my squadrons in a 1980s-era Chrysler K-car station wagon with a military working dog placard on the door to drive the President of the United States. So neither of those two vehicles struck me as particularly presidential. Now, once the jet came to a complete stop, they pulled these stands up, and one in the back, one in the front, and out of the back, it's just disgorges a stream of people. And we had somehow managed to roust a few of those Air Force buses that we lovingly call Blue Gooses to take those people, and they got on board, and to this day, I don't know where they, where they took them. I don't know where they went. Meanwhile, out from the front comes the Secret Service. So I waved the head of detail over to Soccer Mom 1, and I, and I roll the window down, and I asked him, what do you need most right now? He said, a vehicle for the president. I looked to the right, Vivi Surrey. I looked to the left, big grin with dog hair. I said, do you want to use my van? He said, not making this up, do you mind? I quickly replied, no, nah, sweat. But then sensing my moment, I said, can I come along? He looked puzzled. He, he thought about it, and then he said, no. <laughs> so I said, OK, let's go, big boy. So me and Dave, I grabbed my radio. He went to see about the Air Force One requirements recovery, because he's a maintenance guy. I got out, and that's how prophetically named Soccer Mom One became a commandeered presidential transport vehicle on September 11th, 2001. Now, while Dave went off to do the servicing part and making sure the thing was going okay, I quickly realized that there is absolutely nothing more useless than an Air Force pilot on foot. Looking for anyone I recognized, I saw the president's pilot, the pilot of Air Force One. And it just so happens, this being that kind of day, that I went to college with this guy at Tulane University, Colonel Mark Tillman. And we reacquainted ourselves, and he said it was good to go for the time being, but he asked me to try and find out where they were supposed to go next. So another thing tasked to work. And then I spot out of the blue once again, like out of the ether, here comes the wing commander. This is now the second time I've had a sighting of my boss on this day. And he had somehow along the way picked up the three-star general, and they had made it in time to greet President Bush. So when the president got into Soccer Mom 1, the wing commander then picks me up, and we whisk off to lead the way to our base conference center, which is off the flight line. Now, all Air Force flight lines have conservative speed limits for obvious safety and security reasons. Now, while I technically could not see the speedometer, my internal instrumentation was telling me that we were going significantly in excess of 20 miles per hour. I even recall hearing the three-star, who was in the backseat position of honor, mutter something about, what's the speed limit? But I won't quote him on it. Now we turn off the flight line towards the conference center. We soon realized, the wing commander realized he had made a glaring error and had not alerted the base security forces to block traffic. So here we are, the main going, trying to cross the, kind of the main drag of Barksdale Air Force Base. And, you know, it, Edna and Ed are there driving for their weekly trip to the commissary. 
and whoever else is on the road and nobody's stopping him. So what is the wing commander's solution? He waits for his moment. He pulls his vehicle perpendicular to traffic. He stops. He gets out. And we have this one-star general, oh, by the way, with a sidearm, doing this <laughs> to traffic on Barksdale. I will say it worked. It was effective. He then hops back in the car, takes off at Mach 3, and he does a two-wheel turn into the conference center parking lot, clipping the curb on the way. The three-star, in a total deadpan, said, nice driving, Kurt. <laughs> Thus ends phase one of 9-11. But the poignancy and the buffoonery were far from over. We got to the conference center just in front of the president. In a moment, I did get my first inkling that things were going to be okay. President Bush comes in accompanied by his chief of staff, Andrew Card, and other staffers, and he had a look on his face. I'll never forget. It was grim. He was kind of ashen, and I knew that he at least was trying to process what had happened on his watch to the United States. But back to the buffoonery. Now, this, and MJ was with me, so we saw this thing on TV. Shortly before 9-11, I watched a piece on the Today Show about the retirement of the old aircraft they had for Air Force One, which were 707s, really, you know, 50s era technology, which they replaced with the 747. But the thing I remember most about that piece about Air Force One 707 was a radio operator bragging about how he could call from there to anyone and anywhere in the world, secure, which means you can talk about classified stuff, or non-secure, on multiple lines at the same time. So you can only imagine that the 747's probably got what, an order of magnitude 10 times the capability of the old 707? So how does this relate to my story? Well, when we got to the conference center, it seemed like everyone from the jet just had to make a classified phone call on a secure phone right now. And of course, Murphy, here are these phones. Beautiful, they're called Stees or Stews or Stees. They're beautiful, lined up, dit, 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 like this, 10 hut, you know, in perfect formation and shiny. Every single one of them not having the special key you have to put in it to talk secure. No keys, no go, no dice, no phone. So the three-star makes a quick audible and says, student body left, we're going to my office. So everybody moves back into the vehicles to go to his headquarters building down the street where his staff ensured him that the communications were in order. Next slide. So there you see my wing commander on the left, the three-stars, the next guy sandwiched in there, and then there's President Bush giving the, the chop. And then I'm not sure who that other guy is. So several of us followed the group in trail, we drive to the headquarters, we get out of our vehicles, we follow the group. I joined up and went like a salmon in the stream with a large group into the three stars office. What I remember is we're go I'm going up like this dark stairwell that empties into his nice, spacious, you know, three star general office. And I don't know what happened, but all the group, large group of people, they like melted. They're gone and they close the door and all of a sudden I'm one of only five people there in the general's office. It's POTUS. It's Mr. Card, his chief of staff. It's the three-star. It's another colonel and me. I, again, I don't know how that happened. The president mentioned something that time about having to put a statement together. And I could see then that as they were talking that he was now learning the full extent of the attack and the disaster that had befallen the United States. And now in what is to date, I still have time, I think 
I've got a few years I'm praying. But at, up to now, that is a single act of greatest act of self-denial in my life. I turned to the other colonel and I looked him in the eye and I said, Mike, we really shouldn't be in here. He reluctantly agreed and we quietly opened the door and stepped out of history. The president and the three stars stayed there while Mr. Bush prepared himself for his first media statement following the attacks, which he made shortly thereafter from the 8th Air Force headquarters building and it was broadcast on national television. I'm going to truncate my story there. This story goes on and on and on. I mean, there's months more of funny stuff, like how, how did I end up being the wing commander for, for, for five weeks and anthrax and blah, blah, blah. But I'm going to end the story there because I want to focus really on the motivation and what, what's going on here. Because my, my story contains some funny and poignant points. And everybody who lived through this probably has a similar story about where were you. And that's the, why I entitled the sermon this way. But the reality is those attacks on 9-11 were despicable acts reflecting raw hatred and twisted theology. And that's where we're going to go. So next slide. Who could hate us? Does the Bible provide clues? Is there an incorrect or correct interpretation of what the Bible actually says? And what hope does Scripture provide? So before, if you'll pray with me, Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to come together as a body of believers. Lord, may I be a worthy vessel for your word and for the scripture. And Lord, uh, may we walk away with a better understanding of ourselves and of our mindset as a people. We pray these things in the name of your heavenly son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So in fact, the Bible seemingly shows a schism that occurs very early. It's early in the story of Genesis. So we do have between Jews and Muslims, we share a common lineage via Abram or Abraham. And then, though, it, it breaks because we have Hagar, who is Sarah's servant, who Abraham impregnates at Sarah's request, and they have a child, Ishmael. On the other side, later on, Sarah is given the opportunity, God pre presents her with the ability to have a child to conceive, and they have Isaac. And from there, you see that Muslims trace their lineage from Ishmael through Muhammad. Jews trace their lineage from Sarah to Isaac. And then Jesus comes in, and that's where Christians come from. So Christians and Jews come off the same branch, and then you have the branch with Muslims. So some people could say, well, that, there you go. There's a split right there. It's irreconcilable. They go this way, they go that way. And Ishmael is actually the fruit of a rebellion against God. So that makes it seemingly even more compelling because Sarai, or later Sarah, takes kind of God into her own hands. She doesn't ask God about what she should do about being barren, but she sets Abraham up with her Egyptian servant, Hagar, to have a child so that Abraham can have an heir. Otherwise, whatever he has goes to his male manservant. Not really what they want, not desirable. But what happens is he does. He does what she wants. And Hagar gets pregnant. Sarah gets jealous. She gets upset. She sends Hagar away into the wilderness. So then what happens? Well, we have the angel of the Lord. Now, that term is important because that's what we call a theophany. It's not any old angel, not even the archangel. It's Jesus is the angel of the Lord. It's as a theophany. Finds Hagar in the wilderness 
And in Genesis 16, says, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And here's the key parts. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. Now, you can draw some possible lessons about Ishmael from this. One, he's a wild donkey of a man. Donkey, sorry. He's not able to be subjugated. The passage shows us that he's in conflict with the world and the world's in conflict with him. Kind of sounds like radical Islam, huh? And he's over all his kinsmen. He's angry. He's contentious. He's irreconcilable. Next. So I wonder what these guys might think, what interpretation these guys make. Next. But is it right? Are they making the right interpretation? I say no. I say the Bible clearly says that our God loved Hagar and loved Ishmael and showed them mercy and compassion and blessing. We already saw the passage above when Hagar is sent away. Now you could see some negative interpretations of the qualities that God is planning to ascribe or attribute to Ishmael. But some people could say independence, freedom of mind, leadership, character, ability to lead nations. Those, are those bad things? Maybe not. Probably not. It may not necessarily pit him and all his adherents forever and ever and ever against the rest of the world terminally and perpetually. And again, God shows mercy after Ishmael is born. So now we're going to fast forward. It's one chapter in Genesis, but it's actually 13 years later. So now we have fast forward 13 years. Ishmael is a, a young man. Abraham has gone out now and he has circumcised the men. He, God is making his covenant with Abraham for Isaac and through the Jews. And he's telling him, your wife's going to have a baby in a year. So all this is now taking place. So Abraham, though, has a son already, 13-year-old Ishmael, and he's concerned about Ishmael. God reassures him, and God says, As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So there's a difference but certainly not an irreconcilable one necessarily. But the covenantal part is going through Isaac. And as I showed you, that's where the Jews go. That's where Christianity comes in. But he's still blessing Hagar and Ishmael. Our God is blessing Ishmael. And next, now the third time we see a blessing. So now it's a year later, Sarah has had Isaac. And she says, she saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, who she had, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, 
Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So that doesn't sound like condemnation. And even Ishmael's name provides clue. Ishmael, again, what does it mean? It means God hears, God listens. It doesn't mean God divides. It doesn't mean God condemns. It doesn't mean God kills. It means God hears. Now, most of you who've probably graduated 11th grade English class at some time were given the mighty task of reading, <laughs> wading through Herman Melville's book, Moby Dick. Does anybody know what the first three words of Moby Dick are? Call me Ishmael. Interesting. God hears. So, in a commentary, Pamela Palmer writes, what the entire story of Ishmael teaches us is that God is concerned with all matters in our lives. God has plans for each of us and a will that he is set to accomplish in all of humanity. God did not create the world and leave us on our own. Scripture tells of God who loves humanity and is actively involved in our lives. We can know that he cares about us and loves us. And the Koran doesn't see Ishmael as a great warrior. He sees Ishmael as actually... What Isaac does in the Old Testament, they put Ishmael in that place of being like the sacrifice that he's asked to make, that he doesn't have to make. So all those things are attributed to Ishmael in the Quran. But for us as Christians, so what do we make of this? How do we process this? How do we respond to this? To us, I think there's a path to reconciliation. Now, it may not be in this life, but there's an ultimate path to reconciliation because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. Paul reveals this in Colossians 3 when he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And the key passage verse is, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. That's the one thing we should care about, not all our other differences. In the end, God loves his children and he reserves his judgment for unrepentant sinners. God relieves us of the requirement to judge. In Revelation 21, John writes, and he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Again, the key, the key verse. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is a second death. So that's what God has planned for people who do things like 9-11. And in Revelation 22, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. 
Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So, where were you when the towers fell? How did it make you feel? How does it make you feel? What do you think about a fight between Islam and the West or Islam and Christianity? We should have hope. What gives us hope and what encourages us are things like what the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity and thank you for the love you've shown me as a Christian, to become a Christian, to seek salvation through your son. Lord, I'm grateful as well that I was blessed to be an American and I'm grateful for that, for that legacy and for all the things that we, we stand for in our best, the best parts of our nature. Lord, thank you so much for all the blessings you give us of freedom, of liberty, uh, but also for the freedom to practice our faith. And we're, we're very grateful to you for the things you do. Uh, in that regard. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to tell my story. I pray that it has influenced people, but I also pray more fervently that the gospel interpretation has left people with hope and encouragement for the future and for what lies ahead in our lives. We do these things in the name of your heavenly Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. <laughs>